0: hello and welcome to the business behind small business the show that reminds you that just because you own a business doesn't mean you are a business owner in each episode we will discuss common issues small businesses face and offer tips and advice from the perspectives of two business owners one that is built to sell and one that is built to inherit we are your hosts savannah stone and tiffany kao there's a lot of business behind small business So let's get to it. So today we're going to discuss a huge, massive, colossal even topic. We've got a lot to share and don't want to compress it, but don't want to talk for three hours either. Although, you know, we could do that. We've decided to do a part one and part two discussion. This topic is huge and it deserves airtime, especially lately when it seems everyone wants to be a government contractor. The problem with this is that there are so many steps before you transition your business and these aren't always spelled out in some manual. It's more like putting together a dresser from Ikea. Lots of words, none that make sense, and if done wrong, the whole thing will fall apart. Are you ready to dive in, Tiffany? I am if you are. Let's get ready to do a double backflip into the deep, deep pool of information on government contracting. What are the steps for a new business, a transitioning business, and what all those initialisms mean? Before we begin, please note our disclaimer. This is available in both our show notes and on our website and should be referred to before and or after this podcast. Take it away.
1: All right. So going into government contracting can be incredibly lucrative if you can stand all the regulations, stand all the procedures, stand all the rule following that's required to really do well in this space. Now, what that means is also ramping up an incredibly unsexy part of your business called the administrative work, because you have to check all the boxes in order to get stuff done. And this is on top of all the normal business stuff, like your business development, your business operations, your marketing, your customer support, your delivery, and et cetera, et cetera. So, if you are ready to dive into it, despite having to do all of that work, just know that there is a lot of money in this space. So, according to a 2021 report by the GAO, which is the United States Government Accountability Office the federal government spent $637 billion in federal contracting. $637 billion. You're making it rain. Mm, (laughs) Making it rain. Now, of course, $52 billion of that was for COVID, but you you get the general idea that there's a lot of money being, well, handed out is not the right word for this. There's a lot of money being spent by our federal contractor with businesses Mm -hmm. in the government contracting space. Mm -hmm. Now, the truth of the matter is if you're somebody who doesn't enjoy checking the boxes or having to comply with rules and regulations or you simply don't like following other people's guidelines, then I would say GovCon is not for you. The market is incredibly saturated right now with a lot of companies who are more than willing to check the necessary boxes that the government and federal agencies want in order to do business with them. And if you're somebody who likes to set your own rules and your customer relationships, then maybe it's better that you keep to commercial work and keep to small business. Now, if you're thinking about getting into government contracting, what I'm about to say is probably for you. If you're already in the government contracting space, either as a subcontractor or prime contractor, which we'll define in a minute, you'll want to listen up when Savannah's talking because she's going to go over a lot of common pitfalls, pain points that are very much experienced by a lot of companies in the government contracting space. And Mm -hmm. she would know because she sees quite a bit of them that are (laughs) absolutely just strangling the growth of the company. And it happens all the time. So definitely pay, pay attention if you're in the space already to what she has to say. Now, for those of you who are new to government contracting and thinking about getting in, I want to go over the pros and cons of, of this lovely world. <laughs> 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 On a quick side note, though, um, if you're going to the space, there's, you're always going to hear the words like prime contractor and subcontractor so just Mm -hmm. so that our listeners know the difference a prime contractor is somebody who has a direct contractual relationship with the government and -hmm. a subcontractor usually has a contractual relationship with a prime contractor who then has the direct relationship with the government so Mm -hmm. that's the difference and you'll see that in the government contracting world everybody likes to use shorthand and acronyms and stuff like that so um whenever we come by one we'll make sure we describe what we mean for you all right, let's go over the good news first. The pros of getting into government contracting. Number one, good pay. And the margins is debatable, so we'll put that aside. It's probably not the best margins you'll have. In fact, like the government is actually pretty demanding in a sense that they want to have the best margins you can provide. Right. So the margins probably aren't the best, but there's really very little arenas that you can go into as a newish business owner or a small business and have the opportunity to land a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract. Mm
0: -hmm. This
1: is absolutely possible in the government contracting space, which is why we have it listed here as a pro of getting into this industry. Mm -hmm. Number two, timely payments. The federal agencies and, gov- and um, other government agencies that you work with will make a very good attempt to pay you on time every time. And if they don't pay you on time, they will actually automatically add interest for late pay.
0: Hmm.
1: So probably not going to have a lot of commercial clients who are going to be so willing to abide by those rules. Oh, that is true. Number three, transparency. So when the government wants to buy something, They are very good about putting out as much information as possible to help businesses understand what it is that they want. So they use postings like RFIs and RFPs, which stands for request for information and request for proposals that they do for market research and to solicit bids respectfully. Their postings are incredibly detailed. I mean, they're like a job posting plus more and then some and then some and then some. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it includes things like, here's what here's where we are today. Here's what we want. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we don't want. What is it that we want you to put in your proposal and how we would like to see it? Oh, and if you have any questions, you can actually submit those to them and they will actually answer them publicly, not only your questions, but also questions that your competitors are asking. Hmm. So there's a big level of transparency when it comes to bidding for work. And this doesn't happen in the commercial world,
0: right? Right, right.
1: <laughs> Our right. customers are not that transparent, and half the times they may just not even know the answers to those questions, anyways. So it's it's a very different. It's a very different set of rules in the government contracting world. Now, get this. If you don't win the bid, you can actually go back and ask why. Oh, that I did not know. Now, the quality of the answers that the government gets (laughs) you may vary by agency, but you actually legitimately can go back and ask why didn't you win a bid? And there may be contracting officers who will actually answer you and say, this was good, this was good, this was good, this was not so good, this was not so good. Do better next time because they want you to go ahead and Mm. apply for another proposal. Now, if you are bidding on a contract that actually has been won before, which means um, oftentimes you'll hear like contracts are up for recompete, meaning that maybe they've had a vendor for quite some time. And they want to open the pool back up to see if, you know, if there's new technology or new ways of solving the same problem, they call that opening a contract up for recompete. If it's up for recompete and this contract has been around before, there's actually a government website or actually government websites that will allow you to actually research who won it before, what was on it, and how much it was, um, how much the uh, bid was that won the proposal. So again, like I said, transparency on a very different level than probably what we're all used to in a commercial world. All right. So pro number four is small business set aside in fiscal year 2020 per the SBA, which is a small business administration, small businesses eligible dollars for federal contracting totaled five hundred and fifty nine billion dollars. This is not the dollar of contracts one, but this is what's open and preferred to be given to small business. That's why they call it a set aside. This is because every government agency actually has a scorecard that is published publicly with scores based on how much business an agency does with a small business. This is because the government wants to prop up small business. And so they even have a dedicated agency the SBA, whose sole purpose is to help small businesses, including those going into government contracting. So they have like a wealth of resources online. They also have resources that you can tap in in person or on the phone. Now, the availability of that may ebb and flow a bit, as you would imagine during COVID, uh, which... Put tremendous pressure on the SBA. They weren't exactly returning emails and calls <laughs> no. that But otherwise, you definitely can go over to their online website and take a look because they do have a lot of detailed how to's to help you start getting into business with the federal government. Now, let's talk about the cons of getting into federal contracting. First and foremost, compliance and regulations. In fact, they have so much compliance and regulation, they wrote a whole book on it. It's called the FAR. So it's, it stands for Federal Acquisition Regulations. And this essentially is a rule book on all things federal contracting. It is dense, it's long, and it'll absolutely put you to sleep. But you need to know what's in it. <laughs> because if there's nothing else that the, like getting into this work is required, is for you to be able to follow the rules. And you knowing what the checkboxes are and you being able to check those things off. And Savannah is probably probably going to mention that somewhere in her part about it because rules and compliance and regulation is the number one pain point Uh for any government contractor. Con number two is competition with the big boys. Like we've all heard of them before, the Booz Allens of the world, the Miters of the world, Northrop Grumman's of the world. The list goes on about how many big companies are in this space. And there are also plenty of mid-sized companies that we haven't heard of that's in the space as well. And I'm sure there's a smattering of small sized ones that are all competing for the same bids and the same proposals and the same projects. And these people have been in the game for a very long time. They know the rules of the game. They have history and track record. So there's a lot of competition when it comes government contracting number three another con to getting into government contracting is government policies and changes that directly affects you for example government shutdown When the government shut down, (laughs) so's your business, (laughs) at least for a short period of time, especially uh, during COVID. I think a lot of people experienced this when a lot of agencies weren't open because of all the stay at home orders or whatnot. And there were only certain like essential agencies that were still ongoing. I mean, this greatly affected a lot of government contractors on, you know, on being able to perform the work. Being able to collect on the work and keep the cash flow going. And so when there are things like that or a actual federal shutdown, then it absolutely impacts what your what your company is doing. And there's nothing you can do about it except for wait till Congress does something mm-hmm. and the government opens again. All right, number four, the high customer acquisition cost. In government contracting, is incredibly expensive to search for business opportunities and to write for proposals. So it isn't what like we think of in government in commercial world, where you know we talk to a customer, we do some discovery calls, then we you know talk about the contract, we sign the contract, and we get started on the work. In government contracting, it doesn't quite happen like that. There are actually hundreds of pages of document that is required to actually be part of your proposal that is submitted before you you can even talk about anything else. (laughs) This is why they're they're posting for like proposals and like the RFPs and the RFIs we were talking about are so incredibly long because your proposals are basically going to answer that question. And then after that, if you win the contract, then you get the discovery calls and all that stuff that goes with it. But because of the way that this process is set up, people have to spend a lot of money hiring the right teams, whether outsourced or in-house, which is very Mm -hmm. pricey. And we're talking about five Mm -hmm. to six figure cost at this point for you to chase uh, a seven figure project, a figure project, nine figure project. And yes, it may be worth it, but just know that this cost doesn't go away regardless of how large the project you're trying to go after, because at the bare minimum requirement you have to be able to, enter a proposal into the government to be considered for um, the, the project. And that just takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money. So it doesn't matter if you're a startup or not, this is just what you need to do. So the acquisition cost for customers in the government contracting space, I feel like is incredibly high. And the last con I'm gonna go over here is also payment terms. Sometimes, like even the government pays you on time, sometimes their payment terms could be 60 to 90 days. Maybe it's even 30 days, but sometimes when you're starting up a project, you may still have to be paid 60 days, even for the first round. So that is a big time to try to float your cost in between, especially since you started a project, you're probably incurring payroll costs, and you're not going to get paid for another 60 days, which means, what, you're probably running four payrolls during that time? That's a lot of payrolls to cover. <laughs> Yeah, So the payment terms are sometimes so long that it does make it really hard for smaller businesses that don't have such a good cash flow to be able to float their business until that payment Mm -hmm.
0: comes in. But that's something they need to consider before they they get into GovCon. Those are things that you need to think about before you even get into GovCon, is how much capital do you have to start with?
1: Yes. And that's the thing is that I think a lot of small businesses that they get into this, you know, they feel like it's a very, like, it's like an incremental step mm-hmm. to get into it. But honestly, it's actually a pretty huge leap. Um, there's a lot that is needed for a small business to step on, step up on. That is not just not something you need in the commercial world. And that's the other thing I was going to talk about. There is something in here that can be both a pro and a con to get into government contracting. And that's being able to scale quick. So the pro is, of course, you can grow really rapidly. I mean, I think this is one of the few spaces where you may be treading six figures, maybe even a high six figures, and you can go from that to like an eight figure like overnight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can just grow really quick because you'll get if you if you, you know, your cards right and you get a large project then all of a sudden you just have a multi-year multi, multi multi-year, multi-million dollar mm-hmm. contract and that's not something you get to see in a commercial world really often but at the same time that's on the flip side that's also the con of getting into government contracting scaling too quickly if you're a small business especially if you're new to business and you're already trying to learn kind of what how to actually run a business you don't get the benefit of actually growing organically with your company because if your company is going from zero to 100 overnight, you be- better be able to handle zero to 100 overnight. And I've certainly seen um, contracts where, you know, they are today a 20-person business. They win a contract, and in about a month's time, they have to hire an extra 100 people onto their staff. So we're talking about some really rapid growth that if your um, back office isn't in place, if your processes isn't in place, if you're not already acting and, what like, you know, uh talking to talk and walking a walk like a big company mm-hmm. should or established companies should then you can crumble really quickly under that pressure and that is a great segue into what savannah is going to talk
0: about <laughs> yeah the whole time you were talking i was like preach
1: preach, <laughs> you preach it girl
0: yes because i have seen companies that have made the mistakes of not being, being prepared for a lot of the things that you mentioned and the scaling quickly um is a massive one because oftentimes they find themselves going from zero to a hundred and are just now deciding to put the right kinds of tires on their car. So, you know, (laughs) it it turns into a hot mess and then we are expected to unravel that mess. It's just, yeah. So, um, and in saying that, you know, we've converted quite a few client books this in last year. It, it seems that the rate at which people are wanting to become government contractors are either increasing or uh, somehow I'm just attracting them to me. I don't know. But um, there are so many rules and regulations that if you don't start off right, you can easily set yourself up for an audit or get denied by the GSA or lose the contracts you have or, you know, some semblance of all of those things. You can find yourself in a lot of trouble. And, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to like scare anybody off of becoming a government contractor, but in, I, and I think you alluded to this before. Like, if you're going to roll with the big boys, you yourself have got to be a bigger boy. So <laughs> you,
1: I agree. I think this is one of the very unique industries where you need to go in from day one. You need to like be big. Yeah, because the regulations itself are. You know, there are a lot. Like the regulations are almost to the standard of what public yes. companies have to yes. be held to. And because the government here is spending taxpayer dollars, they need to make sure that you know what you're doing and you can account for all the costs and the money they're spending on you. Yes, exactly. So it's no joke how much compliance is needed to get into government contracting. But like you said, Savannah, it's like, it's not to scare people off, but more as like, be prepared and go in it with eyes wide open. Don't think that this is going to be a walk in the park and you can just come in, you know, apply for apply for like an 8-8 status and just have contracts dropping in your lap. Like that is just like the misnomer that everybody thinks is that it's really
0: easy. Mm-hmm. And don't think also that any mistake that you make is not going to get caught and potentially be considered criminal because I have also seen such things happen where either knowingly or unknowingly, a government contractor has done things that may slide in the, um, I guess, in the civil commercial world, commercial world. Yeah. And the civil, it does not fly with the DCAA. So um, you can easily find yourself in a serious pickle if you decide to To, I don't know, either ignore, avoid, or evade uh, those rules, those compliances. So, what does DCAA mean? It means the Defense Contract Audit Agency. And they're going to want you, they're going to want to examine your business in four main areas one, the way your accounts are set up. Two, the flow of transactions in your accounting system. Three, the computations or the calculations derived from the flow of transactions. And four, your timekeeping system and process. Now, these are not necessarily in order of importance, but if they were, I would say timekeeping system and process and um, how detailed your timekeeping is would be like number one plus, 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 because as you mentioned, Tiffany, it is taxpayer money and how are you, you are spending taxpayer money must be detailed, but I'll get to that. So now let's talk about number one, how your accounts are set up. Having your accounts correctly set up is the cornerstone to DCAA audit compliance because it allows direct costs, indirect costs, and unallowable costs to be distinguished easily so you know how do you do that now i'm going to speak to quickbooks because that's something that i feel like most people understand most people use and so if you use quickbooks you can provide a copy of the chart of accounts and in there by clicking on accounting then selecting chart of accounts and run report you have to be deliberate about your account sequencing to separate costs that are direct indirect and unallowable you got to break down indirect costs further into pools for fringe Overhead and general and administrative expenses. So, depending on your business, you could use a two tier or a three tier indirect structure or single or multiple overhead pools. Uh, the DCAA will also examine your chart of accounts to make sure you're following generally accepted accounting principles, also known as GAAP. Having accounts like accounts payable, accounts receivable, prepaid expenses, unearned revenue, those will show that you're accounting for cost and revenue on an accrual basis. So now let's move on to two, the flow of transactions in your accounting system. From a DCAA point of view, the trial balance and general ledger are useful for tracking how transactions flow through your accounting system to ensure they're recorded accurately and reconcile with other systems like your timekeeping and your billing. Again, in QuickBooks, you can print a summary trial balance or a working trial balance. The former summarizes the debits and credit balances on each of your accounts. The latter contains more details like the opening balance, transactions, transfers, and closing balance. Similarly, the general ledger detailed report is available from the report section in QuickBooks and provides beginning balances, transactions, and ending balances for each account over a specific period. Number three your computations or or calculations, DCAA will check your processes. So basically showing your work, you know, like when, when you were in math class and your math teacher would say, show your work. That's what this is. This is, this is you showing your work. Um, How did you get to that? Right. Right. So they're going to check your processes for allocating revenue and cost to projects, as well as the way you calculate your indirect rates. So a key requirement highlighted in the pre-award survey is the accounting system's ability to accumulate costs by project. A profit and loss by job report that agrees with the standard profit and loss report will show that this can be done accurately. So you go in QuickBooks, you select the profit and loss detailed report, and then you can customize it with the job filter. The labor distribution describes the process of allocating labor costs, including both direct and indirect costs to the total time recorded on timesheets. So who did you pay? How did you pay them? Why did you pay them? What you paid them? So. That's that's basically layman right there. (laughs) To run labor distribution in QuickBooks, you'll need to ensure employee details, compensation data, and payroll items are set up in the system. There should be a payroll item for every kind of labor you have, including things like paid time off and holiday. You should also double check that account mappings are correct, so labor costs are posted to the right general ledger accounts. It's a good idea to separate cost categories so that you have direct labor for government contracts, direct labor for commercial contracts, overhead for government contracts, and overhead for commercial contracts. What DCAA wants to see is that labor costs are fairly distributed among customers, both government and commercial, and that no one is favorably treated by receiving a cost subsidy. Remember when I said about that whole like criminal situation you could find yourself in that's one of them
1: yeah yeah well the government like i said the government wants to know they're getting the best rates for sure i mean after all they're spending the taxpayer dollars so they they want to know they're getting the best rates and they will audit you to make sure
0: they're getting the best rate. absolutely and that's one way of uh ensuring jail time another computation uh, computation is the contract backlog report which allows you to see the percentage of work completed and the remaining cost to complete for each job in your backlog it basically tells you how much money is left on a contract, whether there could be a potential contract overrun, and if there are any corrective actions required as a result. So issues relating to revenue recognition or unbilled accounts receivables can sometimes occur. Revenue recognition could differ depending on the type of contract. So time and materials, known as t cost plus fixed fee, known as CPFF, or firm fixed price, FFP. So these are all those initials I was talking about, but generally billed amounts should be based on the accounting principle of matching contract revenue with the cost associated with earning that revenue, showing your work. In terms of unbilled receivables, you could have unbilled accounts receivable amounts for several reasons, including rate variances where actual indirect rates are greater or less than provisional or target rates calculations are important I mean so important so 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 very important however QuickBooks can't perform rate calculations because of course not but you don't need a system generated figure to be compliant you can prove compliance if you show a template on a separate spreadsheet you know Excel spreadsheet Google spreadsheet whatever it is that you have used before to correctly calculate your indirect rates When it comes to wrap rates, which are the base hourly labor rates to arrive at a loaded labor rate with or without a fee, that is the direct definition. I didn't write that.
1: That is is such a mouthful. It
0: it really is.
1: Did anybody get that? Uh, Anybody? (sighs) First
0: of all, (laughs) (laughs) no, (laughs) I don't know what I just said.
1: And hence now that's why we call it the wrap rate. It's
0: called the wrap rate.
1: Can't say can't say the entire definition
0: ten times fast. No, absolutely not. You'll have to justify the basis of your calculations, um, the reason why you came up with how you showed your work. Far. As you mentioned, the Federal Acquisition Regulation requires that you show trends and budgetary data to establish the reasonableness of proposed rates to be evaluated. So these can be based on reasonable sales forecasts and costs, but smaller firms with limited budgetary data can use historical data to calculate out-year rates. Now, the final item on the DCAA Compliance Checklist is the Monthly Slash Period Close Checklist. This is more about providing the auditor with information about the processes you have in place to check for errors in your books and confirm the true financial position of your businesses that is disclosed each month. The month end or period close process basically involves recording transactions, verifying and adjusting account balances, performing reconciliations and printing, as well as monitoring relevant reports, so If it's done right, these processes will highlight potential mistakes in your accounting system and other financial or business issues. And this can be done prior to the point in which, you know, all of the things hit the fan. If you figure out your mistakes now, you'll do better off in the long run. So. In short, or long, these are the items you should focus on to be DCAA compliant. So if you happen to not be driving and happen to have a pen and or pencil and paper in hand, I suggest you write this down. Uh, To be DCAA compliant, you need a segregation of your direct costs from your indirect costs. Accumulation of direct costs by contract service item and or payroll item account mapping, labor distribution into appropriate cost pools, revenue recognition, trends caused by capturing costs and the wrong reporting period. Structure your chart of accounts and configure QuickBooks correctly. So I spoke very slowly so you could write that down but you could also you know stop and play stop and play if necessary cuz
1: or you can yeah s- slow down the podcast <laughs> slow down the like the uh, speed of the podcast totally
0: and you know this is a lot of information and and so we you know we we're not even done we still have more to talk about <laughs> but uh you know Tiffany we're going to stop here and we're going to give our listeners a break cuz that was just that was so much. So many words. There were so many that words.
1: Yes, that was actually like us. Like that was actually a lot, and that was actually the condensed version. Oh, yeah. A lot. Like I think I saw you kind of like brainstorming this a few versions, and I did a few versions yes. because I started with something that was like <laughs> holy, like like way more pages than we can probably keep people on the, uh, on interested for, yes. to be quite honest. <laughs> yes. And I was like, all right, slowly condensing. What are the top four or five? Because <laughs> my guys, like let's not overwhelm everybody. Well, um, and, with I, what's and
0: I, and I do my best to, to try and ad lib as much as possible, but I do write a script to make sure that I don't forget anything. And so my initial script was like 12 pages long. And I'm like, ah, I need to, Maybe take some stuff out of this or maybe use less words. So
1: we pick the key points to have on a shorter version of the podcast so that if you need to, you can listen to it over and over again without being overwhelmed. And it's like a good, you know, like a good entryway into into a much bigger topic. Yes. we would like to have on air.
0: Yes. And I honestly, I don't know if we're going to be talking about this in our next episode, but I do think it's important for our listeners who are either looking to get into government contracting or are new into government contracting, or maybe they're considering to bring a bookkeeper or an accountant on, please know that you're right. We did condense this. So if we're condensing the words that describe how the accounting is done, imagine how long it takes to do the accounting. So, I do find that uh, government contractors sometimes will question the amount of time that gets put into either converting the books or creating the books or um, ensuring that they're going to pass an audit or ensuring that they are DCA compliant. And they'll, you know, they'll question, gosh, this is taking a lot of time. Well, yes, it does take a lot of time because so much is being reviewed and reviewed and reviewed and reviewed to ensure that we don't do anything wrong. Because just as you should be Little scared of the government. So are we. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) well, and also to be clear, too. I mean, we know that government contracting isn't isn't just about the accounting. Yes, there. You still have to get the customer. You still got to build. You still got to run the business properly. But. I think for government contractors specifically, like I mentioned earlier, they tend to get tripped up on the accounting the most because the standard of which your accounting needs to be is so high. Yeah. Like it is 100 times higher than you can get away with in the commercial world. Like you can probably be like – I would say you probably could be a good $30, $50 million company and not have this level of compliance required Yeah, that – a a 1 million or 2 million dollar company as a government contracting will have to have if you happen to be a prime contractor right right? like it's just like it's just so so such a big leap that people often just don't realize this and plus it's also really tedious Mm -hmm. like i was not kidding about the administrative work i mean if you heard savannah talk about the timekeeping policy and details and stuff oh my gosh like I'm an accountant and that like makes my head spin going, oh, this is this is like the worst. Right. It's like so much administrative infrastructure you need to have in place, which is, you know, they call it administrative because it doesn't directly relate to you actually generating revenue, which is cost you need to kind of cover. Mm -hmm. Right. As a small business and most businesses in commercial world can kind of get away with Cutting costs or holding on a little more tightly that side of the business while they kind of grow the sales and revenue, which is the much sexier side of the business. But I think in government contracting, you really don't get the luxury of that. And so most contractors get surprised at the amount of um, the the amount of regulation that's in this area. And like I said, this is what Savannah sees all the time yes. where people fall flat on. And then they spend a lot of money fixing it. Yes, like a lot. Yes,
0: a lot of money.
1: <laughs> so. Right, because then when you realize that this part of your business is
0: endangering your $10 million contract, $20 million contract, you will spend money to fix it. Absolutely, absolutely. And the way that I usually, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in this analogy, but this is how I generally try to explain it to people is that like, imagine... When you were younger, let's say your, your parent would give you money and say, I need you to go to the grocery store and I need you to go to the to convenience store and I need you to go to the drugstore and buy all these things for me. And then, uh, and they give you, which is something that I do with my own kids and I'll definitely give them more money than I think they're going to need, but it's just, you know, going to cover everything for them. And then they come home and they didn't go to two of the places that I asked for. And they show up with a, a bag of McDonald's and I'm like, what, what, what did you, what did you do with my money? Where'd you go? Well, I remembered one of the things you said, but I didn't remember the other two things you said. So I picked up the one thing you said and I got hungry. So I, I grabbed McDonald's and and you're like, um, well, where's the receipt for the things that uh, that I asked you to buy? Oh, I threw the receipt away. I didn't think you'd need it. That would piss you off, would it not? <laughs> so that's how the government feels. When they're giving you money, they need to know what their money is being spent on.
1: And all that falls back on the accounting, right? That's the foundation where all this is derived, right? Like knowing where your money is spent on, knowing how to bid for the next contract, knowing what your cost makeup is, because you have to show the government this to justify that. Look, I'm going to bid at this amount, this price. And here's the margins built in. And this is why, because all this cost I have to cover, like you better not lie. (laughs) (laughs) Or take a guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It it, it better be a very intelligent and well detailed and documented and proofed out work if you are going to take an educated guess, which some people do, because if you're starting, if you know, hit track record, whatever, like you, you kind of, you know, have to have a very educated guess in that sense, but you better be able to back it up.
0: And, and very important, do not try to profit from it. Because you will go to jail for that. What I mean, what I mean is tell the government it costs one thing. And then it actually costs something else. And then you take that government money for yourself.
1: Yes, you should not profit with bad intentions. Right. Like the government expects that you're gonna build in a profit market for sure. because they know you're in business to be in business.
0: But you're but you're noting that you're noting that profit.
1: Exactly. Margin like don't, don't defraud the government. I think that's what we're saying at the end of the day. They do not take kindly for you to defraud the government of taxpayer dollars. No. Like they will come come at you if they figure that out.
0: Straight up, they will. (laughs) So we are going to pick up on our next episode for the um, part two of our conversation, government contracting. What are the steps for a new business, a transitioning business, and what all those initialisms mean?
1: In the meantime, we hope you'll do your due diligence and have a conversation with your accountant and those associated with your business to ensure that you're headed in the right direction. Until next time, mind your business behind your small business.